Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the team at Project Health Monitoring. PHM provides digital solution for industry, sport, and education, allowing you to focus on well-being, performance, and academic engagement in real time. But more on that a little later in the episode. And welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome back, everyone, for another week. I hope you've taken some time out for yourself. If you haven't already, now is the time to get excited about the year ahead. Grab a piece of butcher's paper and write up 33 things you would like to achieve this year, personally and or professionally. Try not to have any restrictions or limitations on this list. The question I often ask myself is, if I had all the money, time and resources, what would I want to do? If I could go anywhere and do anything, what would that be? Sometimes we need to unlock the creative part of our brain to get to our hopes and dreams that we have hiding far, far, far back and out of you. I would love to hear what some of these 33 items are for you. So pop them in our Facebook community, Challenges That Change Us. Today, I want to introduce you to Carrie Harry. As an international journalist, Carrie listened to people's stories and communicated them. As a coach and a leader, she supports people to explore and transform their stories. And as a professional speaker, Carrie now shares her own stories and life wisdom she's gained from them. Born in Switzerland, she immigrated with her family to Australia when she was six years old. While she now calls Australia home, she has also lived in Switzerland, Hungary, South Africa, Spain, and visited more than 30 countries and learnt four languages. At the age 17 and at the start of year 12, she accidentally discovered that she is not who she thought she was. This really made her process what the word identity means. Following this, working as an international journalist, she came face-to-face with a life-threatening encounter, one that many of us would never walk away from. And this was the second time that she really needed to question who she was, what was her true identity. And by the age of 30, she was in complete burnout, having to start her life over. This episode has a trigger warning for a violent attack and discovery of family secrets. I'd love to introduce you all to Carrie. Welcome, Carrie, to the podcast, Challenges That Change Us. Hello, Ali. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Carrie, I love to start each episode with a question so that the audience can get to know you a little bit, but also so I can get to know you a little bit because this is our first time meeting. Carrie, if you were to use an animal to best describe you, what animal would that be and why? I would choose a dolphin. Mm-hmm. I have a really close connection to the ocean, which I can't quite explain, but I live near the beach. I'm 500 metres from the beach. I love dolphins, 
more because they have so many qualities that I aspire to. They're gentle, they're graceful, they're compassionate, they're caring, they are part of a group, they are great communicators from what we understand and they just have such joy and they're delightful and we occasionally have them coming into the beach area here so we get to see dolphins play in the ocean sometimes in the summers especially so I just love love dolphins and the freedom the independence while still being part of of a group so they they encapsulate so many qualities that I really respect and would love to embody myself and have you ever swum with the dolphins have you ever I think once growing up I grew up by the ocean And I think there was one occasion where we had taken a little um, sailing dinghy out and we hopped in, but I'm not sure the details. It it would have been a long time ago, but not as an adult, but I would love to have that opportunity. I think you should book it in straight after this podcast. I think that you should uh, Google and book that in. They're absolutely magnificent creatures. We did a um, swim with the sea lions once up in Western Australia. Not sure that it was with an actual tour. So in hindsight, probably very dangerous <laughs> but we went up in this little boat and went out just in a private boat and we jumped in the water and there were these hundreds of sea lions and it was just so magnificent and beautiful I'm sure there would have been sharks lurking around in the water but yeah that's one of my dreams is to swim with dolphins and I think when they're one of your favorite creatures or there's something that you know you aspire to be like I, I just can't imagine that experience of being in the water with them. It's something that could actually happen just quite naturally because they come in quite close and there's paddle boarders who go out on a calm day and they can just sit there and and the, the dolphins will come in quite close. So who knows, that's another opportunity. Go out and get yourself a sup. <laughs> and Carrie, when I first heard about your story, it's what I would describe living many, many lives, you know, like you've had so many different chapters throughout your life. I would really love to start with the, the when you were overseas working as an international journalist, are you able to tell us a little bit about that experience as a whole? When did you start? How long were you in it? What were some of the things that you saw? So I started a few years after I finished my journalism degree at university. That in itself was quite amazing because when I was asked by an English teacher in year 12, what did I want to do when I finished school? I said to him, I want to do the journalism degree at McGill, which was the college at the time. And he looked at me and said, "Mm, you'll probably never get in. I won't tell you what was going through my mind at the time. But I knew that I had a choice of how to respond to that comment. I could either take it on board and go, oh, okay, well, I won't bother. But I went the other way and thought, I'll show you I can do this. And I did get in. And so I was very excited that that was the first step towards what I considered my my dream job. At that time, the best I could articulate it was that I wanted to work overseas as a journalist and make the world a better place. (laughs) So that was my very idealistic year 12 self. However, it was interesting because in a very roundabout way, that's what I ended up doing for about 10 to 15 years with a break in between because 
Originally, I thought, you know, I'll be 60 Minutes or I'll be a foreign correspondent or something super glamorous. That didn't happen. However, working for an international not-for-profit meant I had those opportunities, but in a way that aligned more with my personal values. I had freedom to explore different stories in ways that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. It wasn't very glamorous at all, and I don't think it ever is. It looks like it, but when you're working for a not-for-profit, it also means that you're staying in fairly basic accommodation, <laughs> and basic accommodation in developing countries can be very basic, bucket and cup showers, uh, for example, or hotels that you think, mm, I think I might just put the chair in front of the door because I'm not sure how secure I am here. So some, some interesting adventures. Is there one that comes to mind when you talk about interesting adventures? Oh, there's so many. When I look back now, I think what were we, what were we thinking because, and what was I thinking The last six years, I was based in southern Spain, but uh, covered project work in North Africa and the Middle East. And this was post 9-11. So the world had shifted it a little bit. And sometimes I was aware that I was taking a risk. At the same time, every time I felt that, I I was fine. I was always uh, protected. I was always taken care of. And they led to amazing opportunities For example, in Morocco, I would be taken into a a family's home by the women, so only with women, and they would feed me tea and I'd meet their friends and their family and and it was just wonderful opportunities to really get to know people in in a way that I wouldn't have as a tourist. So a lot of experiences along those lines, adventures where you're not quite sure how it's going to go because the unexpected happens. Probably one of the most amazing experiences I had, I wasn't technically working. I had been to meetings in Amman in Jordan and I had an extra couple of days to explore Amman and on my bucket list was to visit the city of Petra and take photos. So I planned to spend a day in Petra. So I got on the bus and it stopped at a little cafe on the desert highway. I was sitting in a cafe during our stop there and I had a cup of coffee. I love my coffee. And this man walked into the cafe and he was a spitting image of my dad. And I'm like, Mm, really? What's he? Has he got a twin that he didn't know about? Then I watched the man walk across the room. And you know how people have very specific gates, the way that they walk? This man walked just like my dad. Then he started speaking to the Jordanian man that was with him. Accent, just like my dad. So I was having a little freak out thinking, what is going on here? And I thought, what do I do? Do I confront this man? Anyway, I decided to do that. I thought, I'll make an absolute fool of myself and just accost this gentleman, which I did while he was lining up for his coffee. Hey, Dad. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, Dad, is that you? The man turned around and went, what the? (laughs) Carrie, what are you doing here? It was my dad. What? (laughs) And you had no idea he was over there? 
I knew he had been working in Iraq. I thought he was still in Iraq. I had no idea that he finished his contract early. I had no idea that he was in Jordan because his flight was out of Amman that evening. I had no idea, and he had no idea I was in Jordan. I had emailed him, but I sent it through the wrong channel, so it never got to him. So we bumped into each other. We would have overlapped by no more than 10 minutes in a dinky little cafe. There's not a lot on the desert highway between Amman and Petra. Anyway, so I asked him, you know, what are you doing here? He said, I'm, I've hired a car and a driver and I'm going to Petra for the day. What are you doing here? I said, I bought a bus ticket. I'm going to Petra for the day. He said, do you want to go together? I said, absolutely. So then I went to the bus driver and had to explain to him. I said, um, just ran into dad. <laughs> I just bumped into my dad and I'm going to go with him. And I'm sure he's thinking this is the quickest pickup yes. ever. What's yes. he got that I haven't got? Dad's driver was just completely baffled even while we were talking he's like looking from from one of us to the other and then in the car he's driving and he's been quiet for a few minutes and dad and I are chatting and it's clear that we actually do know each other and we are uh, father and daughter and he turns around and says um so you're, you're actually related and you didn't know either of you were here and I said no he said you know what you need to communicate more <laughs> You guys need to uh, ring each other. <laughs> However, had we tried to organise this alley. It wouldn't have happened. Guaranteed it would have got too complicated. But anyway, we had the most awesome day in Petra. We had dinner in our mum. And then dad went off to the airport and back to where he lived. I had no idea where that story was going to go because we're actually going to be talking about your challenge and we're going to be talking about your dad. And so when you were saying this, I was like, uh, where's this going to go? Where's this going to go? Like, who's this going to be? And then it was actually your dad, which is just like, oh, insane. It's insane. Yeah. We still talk about it now and have a good laugh. Yeah. So it might be a really good time for us to have a conversation about your dad because when you were 17, you discovered a family secret that he actually wasn't your dad. I did. And I found out by accident. So yeah. Tell me about that. I had grown up being told that I was two years old when Mum married dad. Now that was correct. So I just assumed, therefore, that he'd been around for two years. So my mum and dad, uh, they were both in, in Switzerland. It was the 60s and they were hippies and had a very interesting life as, as young people. So my mum and one of her friends, they're sitting in the, in the living room talking about the good old days and their, their youth and the topic was actually shotgun weddings. So when people had to get married very quickly because suddenly a baby was on the way. And so mum had said to her friend, oh, I only knew my dad for two months before we got married and I'm like hang on she means two years because they've known each other I was two years old so I said oh mum I think you've made a mistake don't you mean two years not two months 
And I could see from the look on mum's face that something wasn't right. And then her friend, probably not the appropriate response, started laughing and said, well, you're going to have to tell her now. Oh, no. And I'm like, tell me what? Oh, no. And I was 17 and so it, our relationship wasn't great as it was. That's all being sorted. But um, at the time it really felt in that moment when mum then had to explain to me, well, actually, your dad's not your biological father. I just, yeah, it felt like the ground shifted and that everything I thought I knew about myself and understood about myself just was wiped out. And with an audience, you know, with your mum's friend, not not that we're like not being critical of the space, it's just how it's happened and unfolded, but like having something so private exposed in a way, like, oh, I can't even begin to imagine what would have gone through your head in that moment. And one of the things I, I was really upset about was this wasn't one of mum's closest and nearest and dearest friends. And I thought, if she knows the truth, how dare she know the truth? And I don't. And so what did you do? Like, what was your immediate reaction to that? Well, I remember very clearly the words I said to mum at the time, because it started a whole experience for me around forgiveness, which is a bit of a sub theme to the theme that links my stories today around identity. But Mm. I remember saying to her, I'm never going to forgive you for this. Mm. It was like, we're done because we're already, I wasn't an easy teenager. And and looking back now, mum was, she had her own challenges. But of course, as a 17 year old, we're very, well, I know I was, I was very self-centered. It was all about me. I was the center of the universe, had no understanding what mum was going through at the time. So she was a single parent. My my mum and dad had split up by then. So there was a lot going on for her, which I just did not have any understanding or compassion for. Nor would it actually weigh up in a situation like that, though, to be honest. Like hearing that news, just I don't think anyone could take that news and be like, okay, Next conversation, please. (laughs) You know, like that's earth shattering. It was earth shattering and it did set off a series of, well, it set us on a path where I didn't have much contact with her for a while. Once I was old enough to to leave the house, uh, I left home, yeah, as soon as I finished my degree, I went overseas. So she, uh, our relationship was quite troubled for some time. Thankfully, we're now best mates and we have worked through what we've needed to work through and have that understanding, at least from my side, because I think anything like that in terms of forgiving and letting go of resentments and grievances, it's more about us that, and, yeah. and than the other person. And I knew that if I didn't want it to become bitter and alienated from my family that was an important step for me to take. And it was a process that took many years. Mm. Where was your dad in this picture? He was living in Townsville. So he, they had separated. We had moved to Adelaide. So this is your, uh, this is your biological dad or the dad that you knew to be your dad? No, I never met my, I've never met my biological father. We have a name. We've tried to kind of find him but it's not been being possible yeah so mum and my biological father 
they met in Kathmandu <laughs> on the hippie trail and I was the souvenir of that encounter some months later when mum realised, oh, okay. And were you angry at your dad as well, your dad that you'd known to be your dad? Not really, no, because I realised it really wasn't his responsibility. As far as I perceived, it was mum's responsibility to have told me that a whole lot earlier and not left it so late only for then for me to find out by accident. And dad has been a phenomenal stepfather, I guess, technically, Mm. but he's never treated me any differently from my brother. We get along great and I just so appreciate who he was in my life and still is. You know, we're great mates. We try and catch up when we can. He lives in Switzerland. Yeah, so he moved from Australia back to Switzerland, which is where we immigrated from when I was six. And this is going to be a theme that runs throughout this podcast because we're going to be talking about a number of situations that you have faced throughout your life. And this was the first time that that question of who am I really and what is what do those words mean for me, you know, came up. Did you know that at the time that you were processing that or were you just cranky? understandably, like I would have been furious, like Cranky wouldn't even do it justice. But, you know, did you know at the time that you felt like you didn't know who you were anymore? Very much so. Everything that I had based my identity on, and identity was quite a an issue for me because having been an immigrant kid, there's always this, how Australian am I? How much am I European or Swiss or German? And what does that mean? You know, and what and does, that, does that, mean? that mean? And I would observe myself in different situations and think, oh, that's probably the Swiss part of me. If I did anything that was organized or punctual or, you know, cleaning things, it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, Swiss. <laughs> that's the Swiss genes. And when I get bossy or a bit domineering. It's like, oh, that's probably the German part of me, all very stereotypical. And, you know, the relaxed, fun qualities. Oh, yeah, that's the that's the Aussie in me. And the love for the beach, of course. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely a, an Aussie kid because I love the beach. And, yeah, so it was all a bit of a mishmash. So I didn't really know quite who I was and how to define that. And that first experience, finding out about Dad, made me realise Again, this is a process, but looking back now, I I realise what I learned from that experience is I'm not my genealogy, I'm not my birth certificate. Even my cultural identity, yes, that's part of what we bring into the world and show up as, but it doesn't actually define me or doesn't have to define me. It can be a very fluid thing. And as in my case, what I thought I was and who I thought I was was suddenly turned upside down. Mm. So then I had to kind of start over and think, oh, well, so who am I now? There's a, a part of me I have no idea. Um, I knew he was German. He was a German backpacker. So I knew that much. A few years ago, mum gifted me a ancestry genetics test kit and that was really helpful because then I could see, okay, at least there was a, a few more clues as to who I was 
and it just meant that I was more German than I was before, really. <laughs> it just confirmed what I already already knew about myself. And-, and I wonder how much of it, like as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking if none of us knew our ancestry, would we put so much weight on it? You know, I don't know the answer. I haven't walked the shoes that you have. I can't imagine what it would be like. But, you know, I think it's just it's the known for so many of us. So in a way, when you find that out, it feels like it puts you outside of that circle that you're like everyone else. You know, all of a sudden you there's a difference there. I think what's important that I took away from it is you can have a full, rich, meaningful life not knowing. Yes. Not having all the answers. Because at the end of the day, who we are and how we live our lives is what we make it. We have that choice. And we can either let these kinds of experiences define us or we can go, you know what, that happened. It wasn't ideal. It would be great to have these answers maybe, but I don't. So now what am I going to do? Do I let that undermine my joy in life or do I just go, you know what, okay, it's an interesting story that I can tell it at dinner or on a podcast, but I learned something really important from all of that as well. Yeah, and something that some of us never get to, you know. We still chase that endless kind of, I don't know, thing running in the distance wondering who we are and why are we here and what are we doing and, you know, what's our purpose. And it sounds like this was the first stepping stone for you to kind of work some of that out. Very much so. This is a shout out to all the teachers, parents and principals that may be listening. We all know I'm a big advocate for improving your mental health, but how can you know when to act? PHM, otherwise known as Project Health Monitoring, provides a versatile, safe and secure digital platform that allows students a means to communicate current and emerging issues in real time. The platform provides educators with data to take targeted and timely action so that their students feel known, valued and cared for. PHM takes away the days of second guessing. With children increasingly connected via technology, the PHM approach allows students to initiate a conversation without having to raise their hands. Students need to feel connected and empowered by being directly engaged socially and emotionally. For a free project health check on your school, please click in the link provided in our show notes. This will enhance your students' well-being, performance and their academic outcomes. Now, back to the show. And I guess it's probably a good time to talk about also what happened. It was in Hungary, wasn't it, where you had the stabbing as well because that was the second big life moment for you. It was. So I won't go into all of the details But basically what happened is that I was based in in Budapest in Hungary at the time and was uh, working with a team there. And at that time, my main focus was language learning and understanding the local culture and the people. And the borders had opened by then, but only, uh, I think they'd been opened less than a year. So uh, for those who maybe too young to remember or to know. So Germany, where my family are from, was a divided country at the time. There was literally a wall dividing West and East Germany and there was, and Europe was divided into Western Europe and the Eastern Bloc. And I had spent quite a bit of time travelling 
in what was then former Eastern Europe in countries that we would talk about as being closed at the time. The freedoms for people who lived there to leave were very restricted, if not impossible. Westerners could go in and leave again, but people living there couldn't leave and go back. And it was also under quite strict communist regimes. So you had to be very careful about what you said and what you did. So if you had political, spiritual or other beliefs that didn't align with the governments, you had to be very careful about what you said or did because it could get you into a little bit of of hot water. What would happen if you spoke out? If you spoke out, especially if you were living there, if you're visiting, generally they would just kick you out and ask you to leave. So, for example, not that I ever did this, but if I were to stand in a public square and hold up a placard with a political statement that went against the communist way of thinking, then I would get arrested and probably, yeah, sent across the border. For people that lived there, depending on on what, what was happening and the seriousness, they could have ended up in, in prison. So, uh, so I moved into Budapest just after the borders opened when there was a revolution that started in Romania and then spread to Germany and it just opened up that whole Eastern Bloc thanks to, to people power. So... I was there and I was focusing on learning the language and getting to know the country and the community where I was working. And I was walking home from having visited a friend. It was winter. It was around this time of year, Thanksgiving, because I came out of hospital and I remember having Thanksgiving dinner very soon after. I don't remember the actual date because numbers don't stick in my brain very well, which is great because then I don't think about the event events because I don't remember what day they happened. But I know it was around this time of year and it was cold and it was dark. I had borrowed a friend's down jacket and I was walking home from the tram and it was dark and I knew there was someone behind me. I had a uh, an issue with my back at the time. So I had to wear a very uncomfortable elastic brace. So it was quite wide. It went from the top of my hips to just under the armpit and under the brass, where, where the brass strips meet. So that was kind of how high up it went. So I couldn't walk very fast. So I didn't find it unusual that someone was walking behind me and their steps were speeding up. But I was expecting them to walk past me and they didn't. And then the next thing I know, someone's put their arm around my neck. The next thing I feel is pressure in my back and a wriggling sensation. And I remember thinking, what, what's going on? I couldn't quite work it out. And this is probably the first time I was aware that there was two selves to me because it was almost like there was this two-track thing happening. There was the me that was suddenly realising what was going on and that I was being attacked and I think he was trying to just grab my bag. But I, it was around my shoulder and neck in a way that didn't make it easy for him to just grab it and run. So I didn't just have it hanging over here so he could run with it. It was over my head. So he realized 
that this was not going to be easy, which is, I think, why the, um, the knife came out. And that I could feel this jiggling in my back. I didn't realise that I, I had been stabbed until I felt a sting on my hand and looked down at my hand and realised that there was blood all over it because I wasn't feeling any pain. This was the weird thing, Ali. I did not feel pain and that was probably shock as well. But then I was very aware that there was a part of me that was having the experience, screaming her head off, super terrified I didn't have a lot of the language so I didn't you know I could I I was calling out help in English because my Hungarian was still very limited and then there was this other part of me it wasn't an out-of-body experience as such because I wasn't out of my body looking down at what was happening but there was this other part of my brain that was very calm very quiet slow motion almost, like it was on a totally different speed to what was happening with my other self. And I remember thinking very clearly, oh, okay, so I guess this is it. Mm. I was quite sure I wasn't going to make it out alive. So while there was a part of me that was panicking, there was this other part of me that was quite philosophical and calm about it and matter of fact, which when I reflected on it later on, I thought, oh, you know, what's that all about? And it took a while to then realise or come to some understanding on that. Anyway, long story short, a young couple came running. They'd heard my screams. By this stage, he had freaked out and run down the hill. And it was a hill with lots of little windy, narrow streets. So there was no chance of, of finding this person. He was shorter than me. Had I not had a back brace on I might have had a pretty good chance of defending myself but because my mobility was so hampered I couldn't thankfully that back brace I had been complaining about wearing for six months it saved my life absolutely saved my life so you never know what's happening how it's going to be used for good even if the situation isn't ideal I'm coming to the conclusion that everything does somehow in a weird way work itself out. So anyway, this young couple found me. They took me to a local bar. That was the only thing that was open. They were fussing over my hand because they could see the blood and had this tea towel wrapped around it. But what I was worried about was my back because I still couldn't feel any pain. And I knew that he had been jiggling around there quite a bit. But because I was wearing my friend's purple coloured down jacket, they couldn't see anything wrong on the jacket. So in the end, I kind of just took it off and turned around. I knew the words for knife and back. So I kept saying knife in back, knife in back in Hungarian because no one spoke English. I also remember my address. So I told someone my address and they went to get one of my, my teammates. And I took off the jacket, turned around. They looked at it and I could hear this, so I thought, okay, yeah, there's something going on there. Later on when I saw my clothes, there was like this big patch of blood on the sweatshirt. So I went to hospital in a rickety 1950s ambulance over cobbled streets, still no pain. I thought I was going to bounce out of the stretcher though because it was so (laughs) bouncy, the ride. I only spent overnight in hospital. I didn't need surgery. I did need stitching up, but 
the neurosurgeon who saw me said that the knife had missed narrowly, spinal cord, heart and lung. So he's jiggling around. In the end, it yeah, I, I survived and I fully recovered emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically. It took time. What was really key was an experience I had that night in the hospital where I thought I was having a nightmare, which was the whole experience. Woke up thinking it was just a nightmare and then realizing that I wasn't at home in my bed and then realizing it wasn't a nightmare that it had had actually happened. In that moment, I would say it's probably the most alone and strange feeling I had ever had. I I felt, I would say abandon wasn't being overly dramatic, maybe a little bit, but I felt quite lost and alone and abandoned. There was no one else there. It was dark. I was in another country. And you could have died. And I could have died or been disabled and no one was there. Um, Not because I, I mean, that that was sent home. It was a very old-fashioned medical system still at the time. But then I suddenly felt this overwhelming presence. I don't know how to articulate it, but for me it was at that time I understood it to be a very loving and comforting presence and what I would have considered presence of of God, Mm. whatever we understand God to be. And that's not unusual, you know, when you hear people that have faced death really stared it in the eyes to have some sort of experience, some sort of vision, some sort of feeling come over them. You know, I have spoken to a lot of people about these situations and that's really often when someone says there was just something. You know, there was just something and I may not ever be able to put full words around it. Yeah. And that's what it was. And it was powerful. In what way? When you say it was powerful, how did that change? How did you integrate that? How did that help you move forwards? It was such a powerful experience of love and peace and comfort in the middle of a situation that was probably the darkest situation I'd ever been in. To the point, I'm going to say it felt like, but at the time it was very real. It felt like when you're lying in bed, you know when someone sits on the edge of your bed and you can feel it sink? It felt like someone was sitting on the edge of my bed, on my bed next to me, because if, again, I may have imagined it, but it felt as if I could really feel the mattress sink. I mean, there was no one in the room with me, but it felt like there was someone in the room with me and that they had calmly put their hand on my leg and I fell asleep. Mm. Woke up the next morning and just realised, you know what, nothing can separate me from love or that presence of love or peace, not the direst situation. And I think Knowing that made the recovery a lot easier. Mm. I never went into any kind of post-traumatic stress response. Still to this day? Nope. I had some panic attacks. I had a few flashbacks very early on. I react overreacted when anyone slapped me on the back. But because I worked for an international organisation, the word got out and a lot of people, this was in the days of faxes, 
But I received a lot of messages of love, of prayer, of people sending their love and prayers and thoughts, and I just felt surrounded by so much support and and love. I had a friend come in and one of the leaders in, in Vienna come in. A week later I was in Vienna going through recovery and that was fantastic spending time with some fellow Aussies that I worked with. Uh, Claire and John, and Claire was one of your previous yes. podcast guests. So that's where some of our adventures overlapped. So her and her now husband, John, were really important in being a familiar face and just taking care of me while I was what, what was there in Vienna for that week. And Carrie, what things helped you along that recovery road in regards to, you know, when people put their hands on your back and it frightened you, understandably, but I'm wondering for people out there that have an experience that, you know, it still comes, you know, it sneaks up and revisits them or when you said you had the panic attacks, what did your recovery look like in that space? What helped? What worked? In those days, there was really not much of an understanding, even in our organisation, of like counselling support or I I had support but it wasn't anything formal. And in those days, and and this was, it was like, oh, well, I I just need to get over it. Mm. I just need to work through it. And I was offered the option of going home. I said, I'm not going home. And I think it was that same attitude uh, as when I was in year 12 where my teacher said, oh, look, you're never going to get in. It was that same defiance. It's like, oh, I'm not going to let this stop me. And that was the other, the next key lesson in terms of there was a tennis player, I think her name was Monica Selish at the time, and she got stabbed yes. around the same time. And it was all over the news. And I remember following her experience because it was very much the same time except, of course, mine didn't happen in public in a tennis arena. She had a real hard time coming back from that and it was really interesting because I realised my experience was so different and I think it was just the support, taking it easy, even though there wasn't much formal understanding of what to do. We would, we would now handle that very differently but I just kind of took it easy and just thought, you know, what, well, I'm not going to let this stop me from doing what I love doing and being where I think I need to be. I'm certainly not going home. And now, I mean, I, I'm not stupid. I don't put myself into situations where I'm super vulnerable, but I can easily walk home at night in the dark to my car or to a restaurant. I don't get flashbacks. People can slap me on the back and it there is absolutely not even a twinge of anything. And I think there's sometimes it's that peace that time does heal. And I know we all hear that. And when you're in it, it's like, don't say that to me. But it, time is a wonderful healer. Sometimes some things take longer than what we expect them to. Sometimes it's shorter. But, you know, to hear you say that now, that you can walk home at night, that someone can pat you on the back, like that's incredible. For me, it shows you can fully recover from even some really extreme experiences It is a cliche, but I think it is actually correct. Time 
does heal if you allow it to and you are willing to. Yeah. And it did define me for a while. I was introduced, oh, this is Carrie. She's the one that got stabbed in Hungary. Was that okay that you got introduced that way or for you at the time it was like, no, that's not at who I am? At the time it was just, oh, yeah, that's what happened. What it did allow me to do is tell my story a lot. Yes. And for me, that wasn't traumatizing. Well, it could almost be healing. It was. I think for me, it was healing because every time I, I shared, and people were, you know, they said, are you okay to talk about this? I said, oh, I think so. And I also felt that I wanted to say thank you for the to the people that had supported me. And so there were meetings I did, presentations I gave when I came on on home leave and other situations where I was invited to share the story and I was very happy to do so and also one-on-one with family and friends who I wanted to know, oh, so, so what happened? How was that for you? Because people are interested, aren't they? Like when they want to connect with you and they want to understand what it was like for you, sometimes hearing the story can help them have that empathy for it. And, again, the importance of forgiveness because that night I knew I had a decision to make. Was I going to allow this to define me? Was I going to hate this person who attacked me? Was I going to say to him what I had said to my mother, I'm never going to forgive you for this, even though I don't know who it was? Or was I going to forgive and let go? I don't know what that person's situation was. All I can Think. And at the time, that was a conclusion. It took me a while to get to, but he must have been in a very desperate situation if that was an option that he decided he needed to take for whatever reason. So forgiveness was a big part of that and releasing, again, any resentment, any grievance, any hatred for that person and wanting to have any kind of revenge And just out of curiosity, when you talk about forgiveness in these two scenarios, because they're very different scenarios, yet that messaging's coming across quite strongly in both. Did you work on that forgiveness piece for both of them at the same time? Did you do that separately? Did it happen naturally? Did you work with a therapist? You know, because sometimes people know that they're holding on to something, but they don't necessarily know what the steps are to get to that place of forgiveness. It was very fluid. I was still working on forgiveness with mum while I was also working on forgiveness for the stabbing situation and then probably forgiveness on on many different levels because I think sometimes on a daily basis things happen, events happen, people behave in ways that we're not okay with where it's, for me, it's still a constant thing where I just have to step back and say, you know what, That person is doing the best that they know how to do at the time and I've had to have forgiveness extended towards me Mm. for things I've said and done that were unthinking, hurtful, not okay. So for me there's a lot of power in being able to understand, okay, yeah, this this happened, but I'm not going to hang on to it. And now it doesn't define me to the point where I forget that it's actually ever even happened. It's in the past. The past is gone. Um, so it is in that sense as if it never happened. All I can do now is deal with what's happening in the here and now 
And so it has no impact because it doesn't exist anymore. It's done. It's, it's a memory. And it's what I decide to do with that memory now that that is the key thing. Yeah, and that's that integration piece. How do I integrate that experience into my world and move forwards with it, you know, and we have options in how we integrate. Sometimes we need someone to help us in that space. Sometimes we need a therapist or a friend or the attitude, you know, that you had that's like, well, I'm not going home. You know, that set you on a path of, well, if I'm not going home, I've got to do something about this. You know, I need to find a way through this over here. So, you know, maybe even just that one sentence was the start of your recovery journey over there. For someone else, it would look different. But I know we were also going to talk about, and then I want to tie all of this together because it is a really big story that we have been talking about. And there's one more piece that really ties in with both of these. And that's when you were 30, where you had that burnout. Mm -hmm. So... After getting stabbed, I went through that conclusion that what happens to me doesn't define me, is not my identity. I can make it that uh, and I think there's a temptation to do that. I'm not my body. I'm not what happens to my body. Now, I think the burnout was as a result partly of not maybe having taken as much time out as maybe now we would understand I might have needed a bit more of a break. I did not have any formal counselling or therapy or anything. I had amazing friends, leaders, people with some counselling background, but it was all very informal and I kind of just, as you've probably picked up, got on with my life because how old were you when the stabbing happened I would have been about in my mid-20s yeah so it was about five years later that you felt like you kind of hit that space of burnout yeah because then I had another four years of quite intensive travel and work and different cultures and adventures and this and that and the other and it all culminated in me coming back to Adelaide and when the decision was made which crew goes back overseas I was not included in in that crew and I was pretty devastated and it was, in again, in hindsight, probably a really good choice because I did fall apart. Again, no one at that time picked up what was going on. I thought I was just extremely exhausted, which I was. Looking back now, there was definitely at least moderate depression Uh, There was anxiety. There was extreme exhaustion. Thankfully, I was staying with a lovely friend and she was, you just stay here for as long as you need to. There was no pressure on me to work. You know, she said, I'll take care of you. You just do what you need to do. And I slept a lot and I didn't go out. I I really just had, yeah, stayed home and I think automatically took care of myself in the way that I really needed to without anyone actually letting me know. And again, I recovered. It took six months before I was ready to do some part-time work. I had said I'll never go overseas, work overseas again. I just can't can't do it because I did recognize I had I was moving too fast. Yeah, I wasn't processing anything. 
part of the work um, leading up to the breakdown was spending time in southern Africa, in Mozambique, in refugee camps and seeing some very confronting scenes and um, situations and not having time to process any of it. We were just moving, moving, moving. Five weeks in India, working mainly in slums and filming what was happening there and, and the projects there extremely demanding and heartbreaking. So I, I saw a lot of heartbreaking situations and I think it just all got too much. So when I crashed in a heap, it was with this idea, I'm never going to go back. And Carrie, just on that, before we go into what happens next, when you say you crashed in a heap, did it happen suddenly or was it over time? Because a lot of people are experiencing burnout now and experiencing extreme exhaustion. You know, there's there's a lot of different things happening, particularly after COVID. And I'm wondering, you know, it might be helpful for us just to talk a little bit about that. Did you notice it just creeping into your world or did it just feel like it hit you suddenly? I would have called it a crash landing. Yeah, because I went from full steam ahead and traveling and doing this and doing that and getting caught up. At the time, while I was doing all of this, it was just all very exciting and interesting and fascinating. And we were changing the world because we we're getting the word out about what was happening and raising funds and awareness. And I was tired and it was challenging. But I didn't You're on a mission. feel that I, I wasn't up to it. I was on a mission, absolutely. And then suddenly I'm in Adelaide and it really felt like, you know, screeching of brakes because I thought I was going to go on the next trip. I was geared for that. I was ready to go on the next trip until I was told, um, no, you're not in the team. And then it was this thud. And that was where, again, my identity got challenged because I've suddenly gone overnight from international journalist for an international not-for-profit and doing all these interesting and exciting things and... Living in the extreme, like, you know, you're living absolutely, at, yeah. But it was normal for me. Yes. There was nothing, like, to me it was just, that was just my life. But then suddenly I'm not a journalist. I'm not an international journalist. I'm not travelling. I'm not going on anywhere. I'm having to receive unemployment benefits and then six months later start working part-time. I had office admin skills, so that's what I did as a temp. I worked as a temp. I love that you just say I had office admin skills. My first response to that is, do you, is that all you had? <laughs> you know, really? <laughs> well, if you put international journalists down on your temp form, you like with temp agencies, you're not going to get work. No one is looking for a temporary international journalist in, in Adelaide. In fact, I ended up having to, at times, adjust my CV quite a bit because they just didn't think that role would keep me interested, which was kind of true. Yeah, so it worked against yeah. you a little bit. Um, I needed to yeah. earn some money and some income and work out what I was going to do with my life. But again, that rebuilding and the understanding, I'm not defined by my profession. I'm not defined by what I do, where I do it, who I do it with, who I am is actually above and beyond and deeper than that. Again, those are avenues for expressing who I am and a purpose. 
but not being those, that they're temporary, they're, they can change, but I'm still here. That can't define me because what happens when I'm not those things anymore? And I did have that disorientation. I lost myself. So who am I now that I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not that? I had a lot of a great understanding by that stage of what I'm not and who I'm not. But not quite sure. It took a whole other process (laughs) to then work out. So who who am I? So how did you work that out? Great question. How did I work it out? I can't give you a a five step. Are you sure? Because this would be worth gold. I mean, we could send this podcast all around the world. (laughs) It was asking the questions. And I think a lot of it is around awareness. When you're moving so fast and so quick, you just, or I did, I took for granted what my life was and who I was until I had these experiences that shook that. And I think it's then having to sit down and really, I did get offered, or I did explore going back overseas. I had a three-year break, went back for another six years. That's when I focused more on North Africa and the Middle East, living in Spain for six years, which was amazing. But I, I learned. I learned from my experiences. I paced myself better. I had an understanding then that I didn't have. When I came back to Australia in 2004, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. It wasn't a crash landing. It ended up being a bit bumpier than I thought it might be. But I knew what I wanted to do next and I had a bit more of a clearer idea. So how did I get to understanding? I think it was the process of elimination and it was also, I think I'd always been on explore different spiritual paths and I think that's that for me was where I got my answers or some of my insights and the understanding which had first come up in Hungary after the stabbing, that there are actually two aspects to, now this is just how I understand, I'm not saying this is how it is, but this is how I understand it to be, is that I have a sense there are two parts to myself. There's my true self. It's that calm, quiet, observer self that's always been there and is always there and is unchanging is depending on what we believe about life, death, birth, is eternal, is forever. So I'm very aware now that there is that self and then there's what I call the false self, the constructed self that some refer to it as the ego self, the one that is constructed that we make as we grow and go through life in reaction to what happens. Now, because of all that had happened, I realized that's not actually who I am because it's always changing. It might be this one day and then it's that the other. So that can't be the real me. It is my constructed me. I also realized that it's the me that is fearful, that it comes from a place of fear and self-defense and it's the inner critic, it's the judgmental self, it's the one that's not helpful and it's the one that I know is trying to protect itself, thinking it's protecting me but it's actually not helping and it shows itself in being the voice for fear. 
the other part of me, the observer self, the true self, for me, I call it the voice for love. It's the gentle, calm, quiet voice and part of me that's sitting back and it's always there and it's the part of us that I think we're coming from when we look at something we're doing and thinking, "Mm, is that really, like it's able to observe. Who's the self that's looking at what we're doing out there and evaluating it and reflecting on it? Do you know, as you're talking and the images come to mind, I'm going to share it because it's a bit of a metaphor for what you're saying and it's a beautiful, I've used this analogy before when I was a yoga teacher, but it's coming up for me now when you're speaking and that's the analogy of a mountain and that true self is kind of like what's inside that mountain. It's solid, it's your anchor, it is what is and the outside is like the seasons and the trees and the tourists and the wind and the weather and the, you know, that's the part that's ever-changing is the outside of the mountain. And when you say like it's the inner critic or, you know, it's what people see, it's it's the tourists, they come and see all that. But within that, within that solid mass is this true self and this anchoring self and this part of you that that is really there that that you can always rely on and it's always going to be there, but sometimes we need to tap into it. Sometimes we need to forget that there's all these seasons and things happening around us and get true to what's actually happening within us or what we need to tap into within inside ourselves. Fantastic analogy. And I think for many years I didn't know there was this other self underneath. Mm. I thought I was the outside of the mountain and the trees and the wind and the seasons and this forever changing, coming, going, shifting. And what's made all the difference now for me is having exactly that understanding that you've just articulated so beautifully and wanting to live from that place because it works so much better. Mm. Or being able to tap into that, you know, being able to tap into it whenever you need it, like knowing it. I think you've got to understand it, see it, feel it, trust it, explore it, (laughs) you know, discover it. You can't just wish it. Like you need to know it, live it, feel it. Yeah. So that you can just, it's just there and you can tap into it and that's that part of you that can forage forwards in whatever direction you want to go in or be there in the times that are challenging, be there in the face of adversity. And that's where I'm at now, I think, is knowing there's that true centred self underneath and that that's the core of who I am. And I think for me now what I would like to see happen more and more I'm not an enlightened master. Uh, So, yes, it doesn't always happen and I have my moments. I call them ego storms where that other self, for whatever reason, I allow it to gain the upper hand. But knowing that I can come back to who I really am and wanting to live from that and wanting to, I guess, who I show up as in the world that that is what I reflect and who I am and not the ever-changing, I still have that other self, but I would love to have it reflect more and more who I really am. Yeah. I guess, or have it kind of the way, I don't have it with me, but I have this, It's my mum lived in Coober for 20 years and in her driveway I found this rock and I got a bit excited because it had, it was a bit, on the outside but when you break off some of the bits and pieces this beautiful bit of opal color came through 
And of course, I immediately thought, excellent, I have found this amazing piece of opal and I'm going to be rich or I don't it's know. It's going to make me thinking. millions. <laughs> it's going to make me millions. I mean, it wasn't that big, but anyway, I thought I found some opal. I mean, mum explained, well, actually, it's what we call potch. It looks pretty, but it's actually not opal. However, it was for me a real metaphor because inside was this beautiful colour, but on the outside there was this dirt and sandstone and lime and all this other stuff and I see that my true self is the color and this other self is the one that I I build as I go through life to manage however it's covering up what's underneath so what I am interested in now is seeing well how do I go about just being the I'm going to say opal, it just sounds, the opal, the beautiful, precious opal underneath that's got lots of colours, beautiful colours and refracts light and is just gorgeous and the, and let that other stuff just fall away. And how do we then go on and help others to do the same, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So, Carrie, we are going to have to, I can't believe the time is up already. <laughs> it's like, can we keep talking? But we can't. So I guess my question for you to finish off with this podcast is, is there anything that we haven't spoken about or any gold nuggets that you want to give to the audience today from all of that rich life experience? I know it hasn't all been easy, but like, I just feel like you have, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, lived so many lives. When you think about all that, is there some sort of message or something that you want to say to the people that are listening here with us today? I think it would be really helpful to finish on a practical note. So if there is anyone who is resonating with some of what I've said, either shared similar experiences or wants to know, well, yeah, I am aware that I'm living from a place that is quite frenetic and unhelpful and anxiety and fear driven and I would love to know what it would be like to live more from a place of peace and calm and love. There are some practices that I have found really helpful. Great. So they're very practical. They have helped me to become more aware of the subtleties of who I am and my actual identity that I want to show up as in the world they may not be for everyone but it's what's helped me so the first one and I realized this was the main turning point for me and the life changer when I was dealing with some very high anxiety after having come back to Australia and that was starting a meditation practice so I had always thought it was a bit woo-woo but I was running out of ideas for what I could do to just chill and not be so anxious and have my head full of a thousand thoughts and what ifs and this and that and the other. So I just started using an app and if anyone is not familiar with meditation, has never done it, doesn't know how to do it, I can highly recommend an app called Smiling Mind. Yes. It's Australian. It's researched and evidence-based. It has wonderful little packages that you can open up and start with a few minutes a day. It teaches about what meditation is and isn't. And it's just a lovely way to 
start. Even if it's just a few minutes in the morning and maybe a few minutes in the evening, it's become pretty much a non-negotiable for me because I just noticed that I've been meditating for at least about eight years now. Thankfully, and it's maybe not the right way to put it, but there ain't a lot happening in here anymore. I still have a brain and I think I'm still smart and intelligent, but the zillion thoughts churning around, it's all just calmed right, right down. Just to add on to that, the way I think about it is it just allows you to have a brake and an accelerator. You know, when you're driving a car, if you just could only drive at one speed all the time, it would be a horrible experience. When you learn how to use the brake and accelerator, then it just gives you so much more depth to the experience. So that that brake is really helpful. And I find that now I'm able to coast along, sort of more calmly go with the flow. And sometimes, yes, Life means that we take the foot off the brake and we have to put it on the accelerator a little bit, but I'm aware and I do it consciously and for a purpose. It's not determined by external factors to the same degree that it used to be where I was reacting to everything, brake, stop, start, this gear, that gear, and all over the place. The second practical point or practice that I found really helpful for me, and I still do this, I still do all of these, is ask myself which voice is speaking. When I listen to, um, I know you can usually feel it in my body if I'm getting anxious or revved up or critical or judgmental or that aspect of, of myself, carry which voice is speaking right now. And then usually it's the voice for fear, for criticism, for judgmentalism, and then I switch and I can choose to listen to the other voice that's there. They're just people like you who deserve to be loved and valued. Just chill. You don't know what their day's been like. And then I can come back into that space and listen to the voice for love and myself as well. If I start beating up on myself, oh, you should have done that. You, I would have expected better of you by now, Carrie. I can again, no, that's the other voice. The voice for love says you did the best that you did and maybe sometimes I need to let go of something and it's that wise voice that, that really helps guide And then finally, and again, this may not be for everyone, I acknowledge that, but for those that it does maybe mean something or might be helpful, is to live a spiritual path and practice. And I have circled live. It's one thing like you mentioned before to know or believe that something is really helpful, but you have to actually do it and live it and apply it. And a spiritual path and practice that resonates because I think it's different for each person and we're all at different places and one that really reflects love and unity and acceptance so that it's something that will help us grow in that direction and move in that direction rather than that feeds fear or separation or anxiety or judgment or excludes people. So, yeah, just a a path that fosters and recognises the the, the fact that we're all human beings at the end of the day and all have the same right or need both to be loved and 
extend compassion and kindness and walk in in, in that, that path. And Kerry, you have some pretty exciting things coming up for you. What does 2023 look like? Where are you going to be spending your time? Where are we going to see you? Well, I'm a little bit hesitant these days to, <laughs> to be too um, fixed on, on what might come up because I think we've all experienced that the unexpected can very much come along and um, change what we might have plans for. Personally, what I'm really interested and excited about is doing more speaking. I love having these conversations and I think especially when we've been on the planet for a while and we've had some really challenging experiences that we've been able to learn from and have changed our lives, that it's just a wonderful privilege and joy to be able to share those experiences and lessons. So I'd love to start doing more in-person events again. Uh, that's all got went a bit quiet for a while there and uh, podcasts, I love doing podcasts. So if there's anyone looking for a podcast guest, I'm more than happy to have a chat or in-person events if they are in Adelaide or Australia, well, even internationally, you just have to plan ahead a little bit for those and planning to head overseas again at some stage in the next year or two. So, yeah, that's that's what I'd really love to explore further and focus on that. And the thing that I take away from this conversation, and it's very similar to the conversation that I had with Brenda, was when we're in it, when we experience adversity to whatever degree that it is, it feels so all-consuming and sometimes we don't know how we're ever going to make it through it. Is it ever going to be something we talk about in our past? Is it ever something that isn't going to be feel like it's all covering us or in front of us or right next to us every step we take in this world? Is every decision we make always going to be attached to what happened to us? And this is one of the things I'm taking away from the conversation with you is that, you know, the past doesn't have to define you and that's something you have said over and over and over again. Like we get to choose how we show up for ourselves today We get to choose how we show up for ourselves tomorrow. We get to choose how we integrate our stories into our world and what we want to do to move forwards with that. So, you know, if you are going through something right now, if you're trudging through the mud, if you're in the thick of it, we're with you and we support you and know that at some point you're going to look back and it's in your revision mirror and you think, wow, I can barely even see that anymore, you know, no matter how big it is. Time does heal and we've said that. And so you can't possibly stay where you are right now. It's just I guess, Carrie, just from from you and I, it's that knowing and that's that wise our part. It's like we've been through enough (laughs) to know it doesn't last. And we've been through enough to know, I think, also what we can do to minimise having those really difficult experiences because with wisdom, our decision-making, I think, and our ability to choose wisely also grows. And to trust that the strength is within you. You know, we have incredible, as humans, we have an incredible innate strength that sometimes you don't even know exists because you've never had to call on it. But, you know, when you get into these dark moments or you get into these situations that are life-threatening, it's like what can come out in those moments? That's where resilience is born. 
You may not have met it yet, but it comes out and it comes out roaring. So I love to finish the podcast by asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. I've been thinking about this and I realize I don't belly laugh enough. (gasps) I know a lot of things make me smile. I smile a lot and people say and do things that make me smile a lot, but a real belly laugh There needs to be more of those. The last one I can remember, the person that actually made me belly laugh was me because I was telling a a story about something really stupid that I did. And um, so I make myself belly laugh and some of the um, mishaps I've had. So that would be that. And then friends. Friends make me belly laugh and occasionally uh, a comedian. Kitty Flanagan makes me belly laugh and other people with that really sharp, wonderful sense of of humour. Well, I'm a great delegator and I've delegated two jobs. Well, I'm about to give you your second. Your first is that you need to book your swim with your dolphins or buy buy a sup and head out there. And the second thing I want you to do is listen to one of those comedians that you love so much this afternoon and get that belly laugh happening because that's one thing I think we all can have more of is more belly laughing in our world. Absolutely agree. Thank you so much for coming on today and having the conversation. I think our listeners are going to take so much away from what we've spoken about. It's been an absolute pleasure, Ali. Thank you. What I took away from this episode was hope that no matter what you go through, you can move through. If we think about Carrie's story, she found out that a dad was not her dad, something many of us would never, ever forgive. Then she was face-to-face with someone that could have taken her life. Yet she has been able to find a life that she wants to live, find happiness, peace, calm. Life's like an ocean tide. It ebbs and flows with adversity and challenge. I really look forward to seeing you next Monday for our next conversation. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.